Pearls podcast. My name is Rebecca Meitinger. It is wonderful to be with you today. Today we are in our second week of a recurring series that has come back to the podcast for the third time. This series is called Do You See This Woman? And it's a recurring podcast series on women in the Bible. This time as we recur and revisit this series, we are looking at three women that encounter Christ in the gospel accounts and the way that Jesus ministers and loves them and shows his kindness and his grace upon them. All three women in the gospel accounts that we are looking at last week, this week, and next week are unnamed in the gospel accounts. And I just find that so intriguing because we will get to know their names in heaven. And in Isaiah 53, or Isaiah 43, God says, I have called you by name and you are mine. So we know that God knows the name of each and every one of these women and that we will get to know their names in heaven. In the meantime, they are dear women to me and I love them so much. Their stories teach us a great deal, their boldness and their bravery for Christ and their repentance teaches us a great deal about how we should stand in the presence of Jesus. And so I'm excited for today. Today we are looking at the woman who was caught in adultery. And her story is told in John chapter 8. Just a couple of things before we get into it. It is debated by scholars whether or not this story fits in John chapter 8 chronologically. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not have it. Other ones do. Other ones place it in Luke. I just read some really helpful information about how because in the Middle Eastern culture the sexual immorality of daughters was a very shameful thing for a family, this may have been a story that was orally passed down but not written down until a little bit later into the maybe first or second century because of the shame that the immorality of daughters had on families. But scholars across the board agree that it certainly has historical credibility and that it does belong in the gospel accounts. And the scholar that I'm going to share from today says it even fits so well where it's placed because of Jesus's writing on the ground and that that is a big clue for us that it is in fact placed in the correct spot in John chapter 8. And so we will get there. Um, I will share more about that as we come along in our text. But to start with today, we are actually going to start a little bit before the story of this woman. We're going to start at what happens just prior. If, If the chronology is correct and this happens directly after John chapter 7, then what happens in John chapter 7 would lead into this, and it fits very, very well that that would be the case. And so in John chapter 7, Jesus goes to Jerusalem for the Festival of Tabernacles, which is a seven-day feast and celebration of the Jewish people. And in verse 37, Jesus, who has not been noticed in the crowd, he waited until late into the festival to go to Jerusalem. 
And on the last and greatest day of the festival, verse 37 reads, Jesus is going to make his presence known at the festival. So verse 37, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and he said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, the, given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can this Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descend- descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? Meaning, why didn't you arrest him? Well, no one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also? The Pharisees retorted. Had any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, a Pharisee, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet cannot come out of Galilee. All right, so that happens directly before the account of the woman who's caught in adultery. So what this scholar that I am that I am studying out of right now, his name is Kenneth Bailey, and he wrote this incredible book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. He lived and taught he lived in the Middle East. He's British, but he lived in the Middle East for 60 years and taught at seminaries throughout several countries in the Middle East for 40 years. So he is a scholar both on the Bible and on Middle Eastern culture. And he said that in the Jewish culture, the eighth day of the festival, so in a seven-day festival, the day that comes after it, the eighth day, has to be observed, observed as a Sabbath day. So this next day, which is the story of the woman caught in adultery, will be considered a Sabbath day. And that leads into some significant parts about why he believes this story is placed in the correct spot. So the Pharisees are very, very upset here because on the last and final day of the festival, Jesus stands up and he makes this great claim. If anyone is thirsty, he should come to me and rivers of living water will flow out from them. Well, that is very similar to what God says of himself in Isaiah 55 when he says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. So Jesus, in making this great grand statement in the middle of the festival, he is making a claim to be God. He's making a claim that I am God. And of course, the Pharisees are very angry with that because nobody can be God except God himself. Of course, Jesus is God, so this is not blasphemy, but they see it as blasphemy, and they want him arrested. But it says that nobody laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. It was not time yet for him to be arrested, so God protected him. So they get very angry at the guards because the guards didn't arrest him. 
And Nicodemus tries to stand up for him and say this man deserves a trial. He deserves a, f- a fair trial because, as we know, Nicodemus has come to faith in Jesus. Maybe not fully yet, but by the end of Jesus' death, Nicodemus is actually going to help Joseph of Arimathea bury the body of Jesus. And so it's very evident that Nicodemus had come to personal faith in Christ. And so he tries to stand up for Jesus. They get mad at him. And then at the end of John chapter 7, it's going to say that everybody went home. So that final day of the festival has ended. Everybody is going to leave the temple. And the next day will be this eighth day of the festival, which has to be observed as a Sabbath day. So the story here is actually going to start, the story of the of the woman is going to start in John chapter 7, verse 53. So I'm going to read straight through her account, which is 12 verses long, and then we will come back and we will discuss it. So John chapter 7, verse 53, reading in Jesus' name. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman who was caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group, and they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write in the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote in the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, now to start off, I absolutely love this verse. John chapter 7, verse 53. They all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Jesus had told people prior that even foxes have dens, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. While Jesus was traveling and doing his ministry, he often, it seems, slept outside. He stayed at people's houses. He was a house guest in many places. And then at places where perhaps there was not a place to be a house guest, he, it seems, slept often at the Mount of Olives. And it's possible that was even in the Garden of Gethsemane at the base of the Mount of Olives because when the disciples meet there on the night before Jesus is arrested, Judas leads the soldiers there and he knows it because it says it's a place that he went often with the disciples. So it's even possible that that is where he spent a lot of nights. We also know that Jesus often would pray all night long on occasion or maybe on very often occasion <laughs> and and so it might be that he was up all night praying we but he also may have been for lack of a better word 
camping, <laughs> but not really camping, just sleeping outside. It seems he did that a great deal. And at dawn, he went to the temple courts where people gathered around him and he sat down and he began to teach. So the day is being observed as, observed as a Sabbath day. And the teachers of the law, who were upset the night before that the guards had not arrested Jesus, have made a plan overnight to trap Jesus. They assume that he is coming back to the temple the next day. So going on that assumption, they make a plan to catch him in a trap. The trap being, is this man going to obey the law? How much does this man uphold the law of Moses and how much does this man how much is this man willing to submit to the authority of Rome now here is the situation Rome had declared that the Jewish people could not kill people so the chief priests and the teachers of the law could not commit people to death only Rome could commit people to death so they're going to trap Jesus by saying, okay, the law says we need to stone this woman for her sin. And the trap is that, are you going to obey the law of Moses or are you going to obey Rome? Because Rome says, because they were under Roman oppression, Roman occupation, the, the Romans say that we can't condemn people to death. Who are you going to obey, Moses or Rome? So they're trapping Jesus. Also, Jesus has preached forgiveness and compassion at this point so they're like another part of the trap is you're either going to obey Moses and the law of the Old Testament or you are going to act on compassion but you cannot do both so that is it's like a triangular trap really is what they're doing and they want to be able to accuse him and they want to be able to arrest him so they are trapping him now. So it seems that the teachers of the law were up all night long making this plan, trying to find the perfect trap for Jesus. And somehow in the midst of that, they were able to catch a woman who was in the act of adultery. Now, these are all religious leaders, religious elite. How did they catch the woman in adultery? I do not know how they caught her. And what's also very interesting is that the man is not there. Um, adultery takes two people, and the man is not there yet. In Leviticus 20, the law that they're referring to, it says that a man, if a man is committing adultery with another man's wife, both the, the adulterer and the adulteress are should be punished with the death penalty. So... If they are so serious about upholding the law, which is the whole point right here, like, is Jesus going to uphold the law? They're not even upholding the law. The law says that both of them need to be killed. Now, this is obviously extremely pro problematic for us today. Why would the Old Testament say that two people who are married and having sex with each other deserve to die for it? Isn't that extreme? Well, as we're going to see, Jesus is not going to accuse her to death. He's not going to condemn her to death. So we need to make sure we are taking the whole story in context. But the Old Testament does have that law, and here's why. There are just a few sins in the Old Testament that are seen as serious enough for 
the punishment of death, adultery being one of them, killing your children to false gods, sacrificing your children for false gods is another one. There's just a few sins in the Old Testament that are seen as shameful enough or harmful enough for the death penalty. We have to remember that in the Old Testament, in the desert, when God is giving the law of Moses, they are trying to create a community. God, God is trying to create a community that is drastically set apart from the nations into which he is bringing the people, the nations of the Canaanites that he is bringing the people. He wants to create a people group that is very distinguishable than all other people groups on earth because they obey God, they love God, and they love each other. So sin is taken extremely serious for the sake of striving for holiness so that the people of God are set apart, so that God's name can be made known, so that the holiness and the love and the mercy and the compassion of God can be so set apart that other people groups, other nations see this group of people and they see like, wow, they are different. They are set apart. They do not live like the rest of us. There is a holiness there that the rest of us do not have, have not achieved, do not live like. We don't live like that. They live different than us. So they are aiming toward holy living. And that is why some of these Old Testament laws are so severe. But it's also why Jesus took the punishment for us because we cannot live up to the law. There's a great deal in the New Testament. I mean, a great deal of the writings in the New Testament are about how we cannot live up to the law. Jesus fulfilled the law for us. Uh, In Romans chapter 8, it says, What the law was powerless to do, which was save us, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sin and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. So Jesus fulfilled the law for us. Why? Because we can't do it. Because we can't do it. And so we're going to see Jesus fulfilling the law here for this woman. He is not going to condemn her to death. All right. So they are trapping Jesus with this question. I just have to pause and think about this dear woman. Now, I don't know. Was she, was she like legit just caught in the act of adultery that night? Like during that night when they decided, okay, we need a new plan to trap Jesus. Did they go and, you know, maybe there had been rumors like so-and-so and so-and-so are sleeping together. And they went to that house and they found out, yes, they are. And they dragged her out of bed. Or had she been caught in the act of adultery prior to this? It seems like if it had been prior, though, they would have tried to trap Jesus with this beforehand. Or they would have already outcast her. Or, I mean, I'm just not really sure. It seems to me that it, like, they had to have literally dragged her out of bed during that night. It just seems that that's the way it reads. And so anyway, it makes me wonder if they gave the woman any dignity at all. I mean, I don't think so because they're dragging her out of bed to kill her. They want to kill her. And so it doesn't seem like they gave her the dignity of getting dressed. Was she wrapped in a sheet, in a robe? Uh, I 
I don't think they would have drug her into the temple courts naked. I think they would have seen that as a violation of, of other codes or rituals of the temple court. I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know that. I'm just, I'm just wondering. But I just, this dear woman, this dear woman, she is just a pawn in their game. They don't care about her. They have no respect for her whatsoever. They didn't even bring the man right? I mean, it takes two people to commit adultery, and they didn't even bring the man. They only brought her, which care, which shows that they don't even care about the law. They're just using her. Oh, this poor dear woman who is just being used, and now she is just standing there in the middle of the temple courts, maybe dressed, maybe not, maybe in a sheet, and she is scared for her life. Like, this is it. She's gonna die. She, if she has children, she didn't get to say goodbye to them. I mean, it's just so devastating. This p- poor, dear, wonderful woman who is just being used as, a, as just a pawn in this game. But Jesus is so full of grace. So this is where it gets significant that it is likely the last day, if, if it's placed chronologically here, it is the the, la- the day after the last day of the festival, which would be considered like the eighth day of the festival, and it has to be observed as, as a Sabbath day. Now, I'm going to read from Kenneth Bailey's book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, as he talks about this significance of this eighth day of the feast. The eighth day of the feast was treated as a Sabbath with all the Sabbath laws in force. The primary requirement for keeping the law on the Sabbath was to refrain from work, and the rabbis defined writing as work. They then determined what writing was, that it was some kind of making some kind of permanent mark, like putting ink on paper. Writing with one's finger in the dust was permissible because it leaves no lasting mark. The wind would soon blow it away, and it was thereby an acceptable activity on the Sabbath. Jesus' first response was to bend down and write with his finger in the dust. By doing this, he made it clear to his accusers that he was not only familiar with the written law, but he was also well-versed in the developing oral interpretation of the law. And he was letting them know that, as you can see, that since this is a Sabbath day, You can see that I am strictly observing the appropriate rulings I'm writing in the dust, and that is permissible. So I just find that utterly fascinating. That's the first time I've ever heard any explanation about why he would have written in the dust, because it's being observed as a Sabbath day. And that was the only kind of writing that would have been permissible. Now, what did he write? Nobody knows and nobody ever will know, except I would imagine in heaven they now have the answer because people have probably been asking every time somebody goes to heaven for 2,000 years, (laughs) I bet they get asked, Jesus, what did you write? (laughs) What did you write in the dust? Uh, I have always thought that perhaps he was writing other sins like pride, lust, idolatry, things like that, so that when the Pharisees look at it, they can see that they in fact have sinned, because the next thing he says to them is, let anyone who was without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. 
Kenneth Bailey, whose book I just read out of, has a different theory, and I am fascinated by it. I've actually never heard this either, and I think it's really kind of brilliant. He says, what does he write? Scholars have argued this question for centuries. I am convinced that he wrote death, or kill her, or stone her with stones. His following words presuppose that he decreed the death penalty. He opted for a strict observance of the law of Moses. Then, having made that judgment, Jesus then announced the method of execution. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. So first he, he followed the law of Moses. Kill her. Stone her. That's what, that's what Kenneth Bailey is saying. That's his theory. That Jesus first agreed with the law of Moses with what he wrote in the dust. And then he added his way that that would be carried out. The method in which that would be carried out. And the way in which it would be carried out is any one of you who has never sinned, you can be the first one to throw a stone at her. And one by one, beginning with the oldest, they began to drop their stones. Jesus, it said, then again stooped down and began to write on the ground. So perhaps there is where he is listing sins that they have committed. Pride, idolatry, lust, things like that. I, I mean, nobody knows. Nobody knows, but I find it an incredibly compelling possibility. And in that way, he would uphold the law of Moses. He would uphold justice. You are also sinners. You have no right to condemn. And he would ultimately uphold incredible compassion and mercy because who is the only one who could throw a stone there? Who is the only one in this whole scenario who could throw a stone? The one without sin. Jesus. Jesus is the only one who could throw a stone. He could condemn her. He would be right in condemning her. Jesus would be right in condemning all of us on our sin. Not just her, not just the man she was sleeping with, but every single one of us. He would have every right to condemn us of our sin. We are guilty. He is not. He can condemn. And yet he doesn't. He doesn't condemn her. So it says that the older ones started dropping their stones first until it's just Jesus and the woman. Everybody else has walked away. And Jesus stands up. And he, I would imagine, is looking at her eye to eye. Woman, where did they go? Didn't anyone condemn you? And she must just be like stammering at this point, like so afraid. Because Jesus is still there. The one without sin is still there. Is he going to condemn her? I, though, I really believe with my whole heart and based on everything that I know about Jesus, how much I've gotten to know him, what I see in the scriptures, who he is, I believe that through his voice and his body language, I believe that he was full of compassion, not just in his words, but also in the tone of his voice. In I, I imagine he put a hand on her shoulder or maybe he 
rubbed his hand over her hair in a tender, like, fatherly, loving way. Maybe he put his arm around her. Maybe he gave her a hug and said, I don't condemn you either. Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. John 3.17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus does not condemn. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. He saved the woman, and he gave her a command. Now go and leave your life of sin. Let go of the sin. Don't don't do this again. Go and leave your life of sin. Jesus does not condemn. Romans 8, chapter 1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are not condemned. This dear woman is not condemned. Was she guilty? Yes. Am I guilty? Yes. Are you guilty? Yes. Are we condemned? No. Because Jesus took the condemnation for us on the cross. He bore our condemnation. He took our sin and he condemned our sin in his flesh on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We are not condemned, as this dear woman is not condemned. Today, whatever it is, whatever it is in your life that is making you feel weighted down with condemnation, I want you to tell Satan out loud, get away from me, Satan. Satan is trying to make you feel condemned. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. But he does not condemn. So if what you are feeling battered down by is shame and judgment and condemnation and guilt, that is condemnation by Satan. Satan condemns. Jesus frees us from condemnation. So if you are being weighted down with condemnation from past sin, sin that you have already brought to Jesus. Now, if you've not brought this sin to Jesus for forgiveness, then perhaps what you're feeling is conviction by the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit is nudging you gently but firmly. And the more we ignore it, the more firm he will get. If you've not brought it to Jesus for repentance, then the Holy Spirit very possibly is nudging you toward asking for forgiveness and repentance, turning around, letting it go, leaving your life of sin. That could be conviction. But if this is sin that you have already brought to Jesus, you have repented, you have given it to Jesus and nailed it to the cross and Jesus has set you free from it and now you're just continuing to feel ongoing guilt, shame, 
and condemnation about it, that is not from Jesus. That is not the Holy Spirit. That is from Satan who hates you. And he he wants you to feel weighed down because a weighed down Christian is not going to be on the move for Jesus. They're going to be weighed down in their sin and entangled in all sorts of shame and doubt and guilt, and they're not going to be as effective for the gospel. But somebody who's been set free is going to be effective for the gospel. So Satan is going to try to weigh us down. So get rid of it. Tell him to get away. Tell Satan out loud, I resist you and you must flee from me. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So I tell Satan every single day, we resist you and you have to flee. You have to get out. So just tell him, get out. I break this condemnation. I break the agreement with shame, with guilt that I am suffering from. I break it. Get away. Because Jesus does not condemn me. Jesus does not condemn me. I am not condemned because I am in Christ Jesus. Amen and amen and amen. I pray that you have a wonderful day. I will see you next time as we study the Syrophoenician woman. I'm very excited. Have a great day. Bye.